Hey, good morning, y'all. Good to see you guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series called Holier Than Thou, and it is coinciding with um, a relaunch of our um, community group. So we're going to spend the next seven weeks uh, in, in intensive training with our community group leaders. Our community groups, of course, are our central discipleship model. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to be meeting with our leaders with the goal of just reigniting their, uh, their joy in leadership, their joy in connection, and their vision for the groups. Uh, and so it starts tonight, and uh, we are inviting you uh, to please don't just check out, right? If you're not one of the leaders, um, lead, <laughs> but lead yourself in, in two critical ways. One, if you're in a community group, please stay connected to the others in your community group. Uh, you don't need to wait for your community group leaders to do all the initiation. You can initiate. Um, you can reach out. You can say, hey, I'm praying for you, or hey, how can I pray for you? You can invite someone over. I know, crazy, but you can do that. Um, or you can just say, hey, what are you doing today after church? Let's go ahead and grab lunch. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like you can find ways. Um, even the introverts can do this, right? We're not talking, you don't have to get on a stage. You can just, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations, you're good with that. And so, um, but you can do that. So, so connect, right? Stay connected. Um, the second thing is I want you to pray. And, and I mean this with all sincerity. Uh, tonight at 5.30, our leaders are going to be gathering. And as I've been praying about this season. Like I pray for the fall, you know, we start a new sermon series every fall and I pray over it every year and I get excited for it and I have hopes for it. And, you know, honestly, coming into this one, uh, I have been praying uh, for nothing short of revival because I think it's, a, I think we need nothing short of revival. After the last couple of years, the, there's a fog that, you know, the conflict, the partisanship, the we've all dealt with personal stress. Um, I think we've all felt anxiety. I think many of us have lost our joy. Uh, we've talked about this. You lose your joy, you lose your strength, right? Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And, and I have just been praying that the Spirit will move to bring life, right? Revival may be, a, a, for some of you, you're like, yeah, that's my background in revival service. No, we're not doing that. And others of you are like, revival, that sounds super weird and charismatic, and I'm, I, that just makes me nervous. Uh, now, revival is simply the Spirit showing up and doing what the Spirit does, which is producing fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It is, it is a resurgence of responsive love to God. It is a resurgence of strength and clarity and hope, and it's what we need. That's what our leaders need. So I'm going to ask you to pray for our community group leaders tonight. Like, you don't have to be on site. We, we posted, uh, Lauren posted some, uh, some prayer uh, guidance on the women's slack and then on the men's slack. Um, and so um, if you're not on slack, if you're like, I don't even know what slack is, go to Connection Point. They'll help you get connected. Um, and if you're like, I'm, I hate technology, okay, fine, we'll print something out for you. That'll be cool, too. Um, but uh, we would love for you to join us in prayer. Because as you join us in prayer, you're not simply asking the Lord to bless our leaders. You're entering into the blessing the Lord has for us in this season. And we all need to prepare our hearts for that. We all need to be expectant 
just eager for the Spirit to show up and to do His work. So I'm going to be asking you to pray. This is the most significant reset we've tried to do with our community groups, our central discipleship ministry over the years. We've done trainings, we've done reboots, we've done all kinds of things. And, and that's the thing, it's a, it's a system, and as a system, it always has to be tweaked and adjusted, and that's just the way it works, right? There are no perfect systems. Um, but, but I've been thinking, you know, if, if our church could be known for anything, like if Trailhead could be known for anything, I would love for us to be known for our dynamic community. People who love God and love each other. And, and, and when you're in this community, that it just raises your responsiveness to God. It encourages you to have joy. It frees you in some ways. It, it's a transformative, dynamic community of faith where lives are transformed or people are filled with joy and love and freedom. So as I was thinking about that and thinking about rebooting our community groups, I started asking some basic questions like, what is the goal of discipleship and how do we achieve it, right? Because that's what community groups are. They are a fundamental discipleship group, our, our tool to help people grow as disciples of Christ. And so here's the thing, you can't go very far without question, that question, what is discipleship? What's the purpose? You're going to come to a spot where you're, you're going to have to ask the very simple question, what is holiness? Because there is no discipleship without an understanding of holiness. Holiness is one of the most important concepts in Scripture. Right? In Isaiah, we're told that God is holy, holy, holy. Right? If you're going to find a descriptor of God, holiness is one of the most important. Right? He is holiness cubed. Right? Three-dimensional holiness. He is holiness in all of its facets right? And beyond that, we're told in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Peter reiterates that in the New Testament, be holy as I am holy. You can't be a discipleship and be indifferent toward holiness. You, you can't be a follower of Christ and not understand the nature and the purpose of holiness. So we know God is holy and we know holiness is commanded of us and that leads us to the fundamental question, what is it? So you don't have to answer out loud, but let me just ask you, if you were to define holiness, how would you define it? Like if you were put on the spot and someone's like, hey, I don't understand it. Tell me what holiness is. What would you say? I asked a group of leaders of that, this, a, a group of leaders that, I asked them that question this week. I don't know why that sentence was hard for me. Um, but I was with the Restore Network, which is, one of the nonprofits that we partner with, Restore Network, is committed to transforming uh, foster care in Illinois so that every child has uh, a safe place and um, doing phenomenal work, phenomenal work partnering uh, with the foster care system, raising up foster families, training foster families, um, supporting them. I won't get into that right now, but, but I, I'm on the board and I had the opportunity this week to sit down with their staff during their staff retreat, which is both spiritual encouragement, but also strategic reorientation. And so I wasn't doing the strategic part. I was there for the encouragement. And I asked them this question, how would you define holiness? And someone was like, well, God, God is holy. That's right. Can we 
can we bring it home a little closer? What, is, what, what do we do with that, right? Well, it's Christ-likeness. Christ was holy. God was incarnate in Jesus, right? God in the flesh. So Jesus is holy. That's right. That's right. And so we're holy when we're like Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be like Jesus? Well, it means to be perfect, right? It means to be morally pure, okay? All right. And then I asked him, how are you doing with that? Let me ask you, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with holiness? God is holy, 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 and we're commanded to be holy as He is holy. How are you doing with holiness? If that's the central goal of discipleship. Getting the warm and fuzzies right now? Anybody? Feeling like, yeah, I'm liking where this conversation's going. Steve, more, man. Yeah, I mean, unless you like to beat yourself up, probably not. Most of us, we start talking about holiness, most of us feel shame. Because we know we're not as holy as we should be. We immediately can see all of our own flaws. Like, we compare ourselves to this imaginary image of Jesus, this perfect image of moral purity, and it's like, yeah, I'm not that. I can see everything about myself that's not that. I am so not right? So holiness. Holiness, the word itself means to be set apart. I don't know if you knew that, but in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Hebrew word and the Greek word both mean to set apart, to consecrate, to declare something as sacred to God. Holiness is something that is set apart. And what we do is we then take that definition and we say, okay, set apart from what? Well, obviously set apart from sin. So to be holy is to be set apart from sin. And we know that we're never going to be sinless, but if we want to be holy, we know we need to sin less. And so that becomes the goal of our Christian lives. Do more right things, do less wrong things, right? Today I'm going to get up and I'm, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray and, and I'm going to say kind things to the barista, even though they spelled my name wrong. I'm going to I am going to be nice to that coworker. I am not going to cuss under my breath when they, I am not going to do bad things. I'm not going to look at bad things. I'm not going to say bad things. My eyes will be set on no impure things today. And maybe by the end of the day, I will be one tiny, tiny, tiny bit more, less sinful. So we approach holiness like a giant game of shoots and ladders. Do you guys remember this game? Shoots and ladders. So the game of shoots and ladders uh, was to roll the dice and work your way through, and you really hoped to land on a square that had a ladder. Because if you landed on a square that had a ladder, it's like, whoop, you get to pass everybody up, right? You get to move up at least one row, if not multiple. There's always that one ladder that pretty much ended the game. Like it went from zero to 100. Like it was a zoom all the way across the board. The problem was there were also shoots or slides. And if you landed on one of those, whoop, you lost traction and went back. And in fact, you could get all the way to the top and still hit the big slide. There was always danger because it would take you all the way back to the bottom. This is how we approach holiness. This is how many of us think about holiness in the Christian life. It is an upward climb of moral self-improvement. And my goal every single day 
is to gain ground or at least not lose it, right? Because the ultimate goal of holiness is, is to get, I'm not going to be sinless, but I've got to sin less. I've got to work my way up to this image of perfection. And so we try to hit the ladders. We're always looking for the shortcuts. What's the latest Bible study that gets everybody excited? You know, what's, what's the worship music that's just going to ignite my heart and suddenly make me truly holy? What, what is the, what, what, what do I need to do? What do, I, what do I need to focus on? What do I need to, and by all means, you better avoid those slides. We have a term for that, don't we? What do we call it when somebody hits a slide? We actually call it backsliding, right? It's this idea that you were more holy until you made that sinful choice and man, you lost a lot of ground. And if you hit the big slide, mm, bad news. You got to start from where you are. So you're going to have to work your way all the way back up. Get all the self-control back, all the, you know, um, this is a really rough way to do the Christian life. We start seeing people that we perceive as, 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 as having ascended higher on the hill, as being more spiritually mature and worthy of, of, of both adoration and imitation. And we see those who are below us as um, worthy of pity or, or maybe even to despise them to despise their choices, to despise their... Because this is a, a fundamentally comparative way to do the Christian life. And you're going to be like, no, 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 Steve, I'm just comparing myself to myself. I'm just comparing my progress today to my progress yesterday, and I'm comparing it to Jesus because he's the ultimate measurement. You know what? This is a comparative way to do life. And, and if you're comparing... It's a way of looking at life that you cannot contain. Yeah, you'll compare yourself to yourself, which means you'll feel pride when you're doing better than you did yesterday, and you'll feel shame when you're not living up to your own expectations. And you will compare yourself to others. And you'll start admiring and gravitating toward those you think who have greater moral success than you do. And you'll start looking down on people that you perceive as having less spiritual advancement. You'll start worrying about, well, who's going to motivate them and who's going to fix them and what are we going to do about them because they're not where I am and we need to get them up here. Or you're just going to despise them. Look at those losers. Those people make such bad choices. If they would just make better choices, if they would just work harder, if they would just do better, they could be where I am. Or they could be where we should be because the pride, shame thing you feel pride when you compare yourselves to others. You feel shame when you compare yourself to yourself. It's going to be all in the same experience. Because comparative living is a holistic way of looking at life. You cannot compartmentalize it. You can't just compare yourself to yourself. You will start comparing yourself to everyone else around you. Listen, what if this whole approach to the Christian life was fundamentally flawed? What if Christianity should never be like shoots and ladders? What if, in fact, the central point of holiness isn't what we are set apart from, but what we are set apart to, and who we're set apart by? Holiness. Listen, y'all, this is my point for this morning. Holiness isn't measured by moral achievement. 
It's experienced through loving attachment. Holiness isn't about achievement, it's about attachment. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. We're going to have a Luke chapter 7. Grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verses 36 through 50. I'm going to read the whole story and then we're going to talk about it. I could have, just so you know, gone to any of several dozen stories in the New Testament this morning. The story we're going to look at this morning is not unique. This is the regular pattern. Right? We could have gone and looked at the tax collector and the Pharisee. We kind of, there are so many different stories we could have gone to that would have drawn out the same exact principles. I just love this story um, because there's a tenderness in it that I think uh, will speak to your heart. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at 36 through 50. All right. You guys ready? It's a little bit longer, but it is a story, so here we go. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with an ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "Ah, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, She has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, there are three, obviously three important characters in this story, and we're going to look at each one of them in turn. There's Simon the Pharisee, there's the woman, and there's Jesus. So Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee saw holiness as something to be achieved through self-effort, self-discipline, and a lifetime of hard work. This is a a white-knuckle approach to spirituality. It is up to me, right? Um, I I will grow in in holiness when I try harder and do better. And if I'm struggling, the key is to know more and do more, right? If if I'm struggling with holiness, I need, there's something I don't know or something I'm not doing. 
And so the solution is to know more, do more, right? And, and he brought coaches around him who would help him to know more, do more. Like, show me the things I don't know so that I can become more holy. Show me the things to do so that I can do them and become more holy. And, and, and he brought uh, people around him that would help motivate him and strengthen him. The fact that he had the title Pharisee shows that he had reached the top of the shoots and ladder game board. Now, he wasn't at the final level, but he was definitely near the top, right? Just having that title indicated that he was accomplished. Having the title Pharisee, um, to have that title required years of study, disciplined study, and extreme commitment to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law, which governed every aspect of Jewish life. Every Jewish person lived under, under the, the Mosaic Law, but, but the Pharisees, they dedicated themselves. They were the, they were the top 10%, top 1%. I don't even know. Like they were the ones that, that did it harder and did it better and knew it more than anybody else, right? And so they had dedicated their lives to this. It's an extreme commitment to living out the rules of moral self-improvement. And in that culture, the Jewish culture, the Pharisees got a ton of respect for it. It was uh, obviously a highly religious culture. They, they centered themselves around the Mosaic Law, and as a result, those who obeyed the law had, had a higher level of honor in the culture, right? And so as a Pharisee, he was not only recognized as being holier than the average Joe, but was honored for it and celebrated for it, right? In that culture, Pharisees were given a ton of respect. He had climbed the ladder of moral self-improvement, and now he stood near the top of the board. Now, there's a couple of cultural things that we should be aware of at the outset. The first is that this was a shame-honor culture. The ancient Near East was governed by a shame-honor culture, much like Eastern cultures are today. We're not a shame-honor culture. It doesn't mean shame and honor don't play a role in our culture. We're much more of a fame and, and, and poverty culture. Like, we gravitate toward people toward fame. We don't, we don't care if they got their fame in shameful way. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, if they're famous because they did something stupid, but they're still famous, we're like, hey, can I get a selfie? Right? I want to post this on Instagram. It kind of raises my social profile. Right? You're a huge influencer in culture. Maybe I'll be a little bit more if I can get a little bit of time with you. Right? This is why people go to network meetings with big names. Right? If you want to, if you want to have a network meeting where people are showing up, you've got to float who you're going to be inviting. You know, you got to get the big names out so that people have the opportunity to rub shoulders with people they consider more important than themselves, who have greater influence, a, a greater cash of, of social value than they themselves have. In this culture, it was built around shame and honor. And so those who had greater honor had greater esteem in the culture. Those who had less honor had less esteem in the culture. This was a fundamental dynamic at work. The goal in that culture was to climb in honor. And this was true, by the way, both in Rome and in Israel. Now, they defined honor a little bit differently in the two contexts. One was a secular nation. One was a highly religious nation. So they defined it differently, but not surprisingly, as often happens in synchronous uh, cultural circles, they were driven by the same impulses. They defined the goals a little bit differently, but, but the same was true in Rome. They wanted to have greater honor. Greater honor gave you greater power. Right? And so the goal in Rome was to have a statue built in your name or to have a whole district that carried your name after you died. That was a form of immortality in Rome. In Israel, it was to be seen as having climbed the ladder of moral self-improvement, of being holy. 
Now, in that culture, what that means then is who you associate with is incredibly important. A couple, uh, uh, who you had in your home would either raise or lower your honor in the community because this wasn't a private meeting, right? When you had people into your home, uh, don't picture ancient homes like ours, right, where you've got you know, a long driveway and, and, and windows and locked doors. These were compounds, and each home had multiple families living in it, and often had servants living in it. It was the marketplace. The home was the marketplace. And, and when you gathered for a large meal, you would come to a central area that was often open. There would be a low table, and everybody would gather around it. It was a community thing, right? It was seen. It was known. And so when you had somebody in your home, it wasn't a private meeting. It was a public statement. And, and who you had in your home would either raise your honor in the community or, or potentially lower it. And so Simon, the Pharisee, sees, him help, sees himself as being the gracious host, right? He is, he is inviting Jesus. And when he invites Jesus, what I want you to catch is that he's sharing his honor with Jesus. He is a Pharisee. Jesus is an up-and-coming rabbi. So he's kind of like, hey, little brother, I see what you're doing over here. I dig it. Why don't you come hang out with me? Come to my house and have a meal. The invitation itself was meant to be an expression of honor to Jesus from someone in greater honor position to someone lower. Just come and hang out with me, and when you hang out with me, my honor will be transferred to you. I'm being gracious in this way. I'm sharing my honor with you. Now, obviously, there's going to be a dual motivation here. Because in a culture in which you want to rise in honor, you don't just want to share your honor indiscriminately. You want to share your honor with those people who are going to raise your honor. And he saw Jesus as this up-and-coming rabbi. Jesus was like, made a huge splash on the scene. Everybody was paying attention. He had, he had the crowds following him. He had people showing up to listen to him. Everybody, the buzz was all about Jesus. And so, yeah, he was kind of an up-and-coming rabbi. But by inviting Jesus into his home, he himself stood to benefit by having some of that energy transferred to him, some of that honor transferred to him. But in this case, Simon clearly sees himself as the one with greater honor. Simon clearly sees himself as the one doing a favor for Jesus. By, by hosting this meeting, it is Jesus who, who stands to benefit. So when he showed up, he didn't have his servants ready to wash his feet. During those times, they would walk barefoot or they would walk in sandals, and all the roads were dirt, and so it was very customary. Um, when you wanted to honor somebody for a meal, you would show up and not only provide them a meal, but you would provide servants to wash their feet, right? It was, it was just a, a, a courtesy, right? It was, a, it was an honor. He didn't have ointment ready to, to anoint his head, right? So to, to put ointment, and, and um, ointment's expensive. It costs money. Only people with wealth or, or uh, influence could have such things. And, and if you really wanted to honor a guest, you would anoint their head with this sweet-smelling ointment or perfume. It was a way of, of recognizing and giving honor to your guests. He didn't have ointment ready. He didn't need to, right? He didn't get up and give him the, the kiss of honor. And you're like, I don't want a dude getting up and giving me a kiss of honor. I know, our culture is different, right? But Paul said, greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and he was talking to men and women, and he was saying, because culturally, if the Pharisee really wanted to honor Jesus when Jesus arrived, he would have gotten up and embraced him and kissed him, right? But instead, he just was like, hey, Jesus, little brother, come on, man, take a seat, right? He was already honoring him enough. 
He didn't need to go over the top. He didn't need to extend a greater honor because he was already being so gracious by inviting him in. He didn't see himself as slighting Jesus. I want you to catch that. He wasn't trying to insult Jesus. He just didn't show Jesus as much honor as he would have if he had perceived Jesus to have greater, to have greater honor than himself. If he had seen Jesus as superior on this shoots and ladders game, man, he would have behaved differently. As it was, he, he behaved as a, as a gracious host, somebody who was doing Jesus a favor. And everything was going great at the dinner until this woman shows up, right? This, this woman um, that Luke calls a woman of the city who was a sinner. All right, three strikes. She's a woman. You're like, hey, don't insult women. I'm not. I'm just saying culturally, during this period of time, women didn't have legal authority. They didn't have social standing. They didn't have rights. Um, and, and so where they did not go freely into men's spaces as a woman. There were invisible and sometimes physical barriers between women's courts and men's courts. She was of the city, which indicates that she is a, it's a, it's a derogatory term. Right? She wasn't somebody who um, was of a home or of a community or of a, she was of the city. And then he drives it home by saying she was a sinner. Now, we don't know what she did in the city, but it was not something everyone else considered worthy of praise. It was not something that gained her honor. She was at the bottom of the shame honor scale. Most people when they came across her in public, wouldn't even see her. That's what we do with low honor people. We don't even see them. Like if there's somebody famous walking down the street, you will see them. If there's somebody that in your community that you, you're like, man, I want to associate with them, you will see them. Somebody on the, on the low scale, you don't see them. Or if you do, you see them and you just have pity for them. Or maybe you despise them. Maybe you resent that they're there. Because their low honor is an intrusion into your high honor life. That was her, man. She was on the bottom of the shame honor scale. But it is clear that at some point, she had some encounter with Jesus that changed her. Because when she heard Jesus was having dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, she decided to do something ridiculously audacious. She showed up without an invitation to a space where she knew she wouldn't be welcomed, right? At some point, Jesus made her feel seen and valued and loved. And as a result, that encounter gave her remarkable courage. She came to be near Jesus, even though she knew she was stepping into an environment that would reject her, potentially abuse her for doing so. And then she comes up behind Jesus. Now remember, Middle Eastern, uh, they're, they're not sitting at an upright table like we think with chairs, right? Um, I got to actually experience this when we went to Kyrgyzstan, um, a Central Asian culture. We, we had these low tables 
that were just really platforms with pillows on the floor all around. And it was a central gathering area outside. And, and um, my joints, Americans' joints, don't do this real well. So it was really uncomfortable and hard. Like I sit cross-legged and my back hurts or I sit on my legs and my knees are going, ah, you know. And, 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 but, you know, you loosen up your joints, it's actually quite comfortable. So they were used to this. So they would sit on their feet and eat. Or as the evening progressed, they would recline at table. To recline at table meant they would actually lean over onto the pillow with their face toward the table and toward the others at the table with their feet sticking out behind them. And Jesus at this point is, is reclining at table and she comes up behind Jesus in full view of everyone else at the table. Hmm. To anoint his feet. We don't know her story. Luke leaves it purposely vague. Some people guess at who she is. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. Um, but we do know the context enough to know what should have happened. The normal response here, when Simon saw this woman come into this space, he would have called the bouncers and they would have kicked her out. And it wouldn't have been gentle. She had no invitation and no right in this space. That's how they perceived it. She would have, if they had let her stay, it would have tarnished their honor. It would have lowered their standing. This was not the place for them to interact with her. And for her to presumptuously step into this space at the expense of their honor and their comfort was audacious. It was, it was provocative and it would have gotten her a beating. She was in danger by doing this. But she doesn't ask permission. She doesn't show up and beg for food. She doesn't look for anyone's. She's not looking to catch the eye of anyone as she's coming in to get a nod or permission. She just walks to the feet of Jesus, stoops over them, and starts weeping. And as she cries, her tears fall onto his dirty feet. And they start making those patterns in the dirt. And she sees it and she takes her hair and she starts wiping his feet to clean them. To... And then she pulls out this flask of ointment. Quite possibly the only treasure she owns. Who knows where she got it? Those things are expensive. That, that is the privileged world, not her world. But she pulls out this treasure and she pours it out on his feet in her tears. This is a beautiful and highly awkward moment. Right? I mean, can you imagine? How weird is this for everyone else at the table? Right? Like, she comes in, not invited, not expected, not okay. And then she's like crying on his feet, wiping them with her hair, taking out the ointment and putting them like, everyone's like, what is happening right now? This is not okay. This is not the way these rules are supposed to work. And so Simon is like aghast both at her impudence, but also at Jesus' tolerance. If she had tried to do that to Simon, how do you think Simon would have responded? Not like Jesus. 
So he's sitting there and he's like, look at her, look at him. She was unholy. She was a woman. She was of the city. She was a sinner. And by letting her touch him like that in public, Jesus was lowering his own honor. He was lowering his esteem in a space where everyone assumes you're trying to gain honor. He is is behaving inappropriately. He is in full view of everyone present. He's tolerating what shouldn't be tolerated. He's not rebuking what should be rebuked. He is not taking a stand for holiness and honor and the way things are supposed to be. So Simon drew the conclusion that made perfect sense to him as someone who had spent his entire life devoted to moving up the scale of honor and attaining holiness that Jesus was clearly no prophet. He must have made a mistake. He must have thought this was a servant. It's the only thing that could explain it. If if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. And if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would have never allowed it to happen. So clearly, he was not a prophet. And Simon had overestimated Jesus' worth. And in that moment, he's probably calculating, oops, I think I made a mistake inviting him into my home. Because not only is he dishonoring himself, he's dishonoring me. I'm losing social standing. Therefore, Jesus is no true man worthy of honor. If he were, he'd know better. If he were, he'd do better. So Jesus, I love this, knowing Simon's thoughts, because Simon just thinks this to himself. (laughs) Jesus, you got to love those moments, man. He just pierces it. Like, he just looks him in the eye, and he's like, Simon, uh, I got something to say to you. Right? That's literally verse 40. I got something to say to you. And Simon's like, all right, talk, right? You got something to say? Go ahead, go ahead and say it. And then out of the blue, left field, he tells him a story about two people who had debts. One guy owes 10 times more than another guy, but they owe it all to the same guy. And so the guy who holds, holds the debts shows up and he's like, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Today I'm Oprah. Everybody gets debt forgiveness, right? Forgiveness for you, forgiveness for you. And then he's like, who do you think loved him more in response? And again, Simon, even the reluctance, he's like, well, I suppose the one who had more forgiven him, right? He's so uncomfortable right now. He's like, what is happening? She's still washing his feet. He's asking me these weird questions about debt collection. I have no idea what's happening right now. I suppose the guy who was forgiven more. And Jesus is like, all right, you got one thing right. You have spoken rightly. Typical Jesus, man. He'll ask you a question, get you nodding, like, okay, yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. And he's like, well, if you agree with me on that, then you're going to agree with me on this. And you're like, wait, don't take me there. What? Like, that's way too convicting. Don't know, right? So Jesus goes on to completely dismantle the Pharisees' understanding of holiness. Completely dismantle it. Right? And what I, I want you to catch this, verse 44, I want you to actually look at this because this is probably one of the most tender and kind things in this entire passage. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Simon was looking at Jesus talking about the woman. 
She didn't even have enough honor to be addressed or acknowledged. She was a problem to be solved, not a person to be loved. She was a problem to be fixed, not a person to be loved. Jesus in that moment shifts his attention from Simon to her. And he keeps talking to Simon, which is a clear indication to Simon that she is in this moment the one of greater honor. He switches his gaze. What that, can you imagine her heart in that moment? What his simple shifting of the gaze, I see you, I acknowledge you, I value you when everyone else wants you to be invisible. I don't want you to disappear. I give you my honor. I give you my attention. I give you my love. And then he goes on to confront Simon while looking at her. So Simon's no longer the object of, of, of honor. He's, he's still the focus of the conversation, but, but he's not talking to Simon about the woman. He's talking to the woman to honor her, to protect her, to dignify her, to love her. Take a look at verses 44 through 46 and see what he says. He says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I enter your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. Those who are forgiven much love much. What he's saying to Simon is, your moral self-improvement all your self-discipline, all your religious record, it doesn't impress me. You're not holy. You have all the trappings of holiness. You have all the applause of religious people. You have people around you who are proclaiming you holy and, and lifting you up as holy and wanting to be like you and, and they give you freedom to look down on others who aren't as holy and, and, and they, they look to your advice on how to fix people who aren't holy. All of that does not impress me. Your standing in the community, how you impress others, it doesn't impress me because holiness isn't measured in moral achievement. It's expressed in loving attachment. You think I've dishonored myself by letting this woman wash my feet. No, I've allowed you to dishonor me by trying to impress me without loving me. Holiness isn't measured in moral self-improvement. It is measured in humble responsiveness to love. She is overwhelmed by my love. And in response, she has overwhelming love for me. That's holiness. Not her actions. She's not holy because she washed my feet. She's not holy because she kissed my feet. She's not holy because she anointed my feet. She is holy because of the love that led her to the actions. The actions are just the fruit of the love. It is the love that matters. It is the attachment of love. It is the responsiveness, the humble responsiveness of love 
that is the two, true expression and experience of holiness. It is the motive behind the actions, not the actions. A heart filled with love for the one that has loved her. And as a result, you want to know who the holy one in this room is? I love this. You want to know who the holy one in this room is? It's her. In front of everyone. Your sins are forgiven. I declare you holy. In this room of self-righteous, self-perceived, holy judgment of these people who have dedicated their lives to fixing themselves and judging others, I declare you holy. I cover you with honor. I give my holiness to you. I give my honor to you. That wasn't a declaration for the rest of the room. That was a gift for her. He wasn't using her as an object lesson. He was loving her. But he was doing it in a way that everyone else could see to challenge their misconceptions about what makes a person holy. You are holy. Remember, the root word of holy is set apart. In that room, he looks at the entire room and he says, this one, the one you despise, the one you reject, the one you have no esteem for, the one you think is a total moral failure, she's holy because I set her apart for my love. And you want to know how she's received the gift? She loves me in response. Because as we know, the invitation was for everybody in the room. Anybody in that room could have been given that same gift if they had shown up with the same need. The problem was when we're focused on attaining our own moral superiority through self-improvement, we don't show up asking for grace. We show up asking for help. I don't need grace. I need help. And it is pride that drives us. And it is shame that enslaves us. Grace shows up with nothing but need. And when we show up with nothing but need, we get everything in grace. That's the invitation of the gospel. That is the perpetual call of the good news of Jesus Christ to set aside your dead works, the good works you do to try to earn and attain life, but they're dead because they can't get you there. And instead, receive the love that will lead you to the works. She anointed his feet. She did the works. She took incredible bold steps of faith. She stepped into a space that literally could have cost her her life. But the works weren't the point. It was the love that motivated it. Holiness isn't about achievement. It's about attachment. 
It's not about performance. It's about humble responsiveness to love. And Jesus looks at her and says, Sister, I set you apart. You are holy. You are sacred. You are forgiven. You are mine. And that's the invitation of the gospel to each one of us. You know, Simon assumed that holiness was about climbing the ladders of self-improvement. You know, she wasn't worried about ladders. She wasn't worried about whether or not her works were good enough or bad enough. She wasn't worried about how moral she was. She wasn't even focused on that. She wasn't climbing a ladder. She was more like a flower opening up to the movement of the sun, just consumed with receiving love. He assumed holiness was comparative and that his goal was to continually improve in comparing himself to himself and to the world and to culture. She wasn't comparing herself to anybody because she recognized that holiness was a gift. A gift of love simply to be received and rejoiced in. Because he was living in a comparative world, he felt like it was his obligation to judge how everyone else was doing around him. This person's doing okay. That person's doing great. That person needs a little bit of help. And this person's a complete wreck. She wasn't evaluating anybody else in the room. She wasn't trying to fix anybody. She just wanted to be loved. And when she left that room, I guarantee you, she was looking for other people who loved him as much as she did. She was looking for a community of love. People that were like undone by the love of God and like, let's share that love. Do you love him too? Because if you do, I want to be near you. Because we share love. Listen, holiness isn't about achievement. It's about attachment. It's not about performance. It's about love. We often think we need accountability to grow in holiness. We need a little help to become more self-disciplined in our moral self-improvement projects. We need people around us that are going to help us get better at our white-knuckle approach to spiritual growth of knowing more and doing more, of trying better and, 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 and trying harder. You know what we need, y'all? We need to be surprised again by grace. We need to be surprised by love so much that we're not thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about Him. We're not consumed with how I'm doing. We're just like, holy cow, you know what? He loves me. Him. And we need a community around us that awakens that love. We don't need people to give us better advice on how to do better in our self-improvement projects. We need people around us that are going to ignite our responsive love to God. People are going to be like, yeah, I love him too, you too. Let's share that. This is the central goal of discipleship. The great command, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. If discipleship doesn't lead you to obey that command, it's not true biblical discipleship. The goal of discipleship is to love God and love others. So please be in prayer for our community group leaders.
and for our church. As we seek to once again engage the power of the Holy Spirit to ignite our hearts to love, to be consumed with love for God and awakened in our love for one another. Understanding that ultimately we only grow in our love for God as we learn to grow in our love for each other. That's what the body's all about. Love is not an abstract thing that you simply grow in private. It is interrelational. It requires others. You cannot be holy outside of relationships. Holy is fundamentally relational. So be in prayer. For a fresh movement of the Spirit to ignite our hearts. To love God and love each other. Let me pray for us. We'll move into our time of response. Father, I thank you that you love us. And the only thing you require of us to receive that love is, is a humble heart that comes with the need to be loved. The only thing you're looking for us is, is the faith, the trust that says, I'll show up to receive this gift. I trust you more than I trust myself. I trust, I trust your plan more than I trust my own. I trust your heart more than I trust my own because you love me so profoundly and I love you. Help me grow in that love. Lord, help us to be a people who aren't just going through the motions of religious behavior, who aren't just going through the, the motions, who, are, who have given ourselves over to the quiet desperation of moral self-improvement. Ignite our hearts. Once again, Lord, that we might be like this glorious woman, this holy woman of the city who was a sinner, set apart by your love for your love. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't received this gift of salvation, if there's anyone here this morning that, that hasn't believed and received this gift, that you would open their heart to receive it this morning that you would awaken their need for salvation and they would come to you maybe for the first time to receive the gift of salvation, to say, I trust you more than I trust myself and, and I trust that Jesus died and rose again for me. And for those of us who believe, Lord, I pray that you would awaken a fresh response of love to your love, that you would, you would rattle our cage, that you would, you would make us uncomfortable in our, in our, our self-content lives that we would once again be undone by your grace. Aware of our need and even more aware of your love. Meet us in this space for your glory and for our good. And all God's people said,